substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundreds The politics, media, uh, whatever you want, podcast, whatever, whatever you get from it, it, it can be that. It will be that for you. We're back to a, to a regular schedule, 2024. I think this is our second episode of the year. I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie. Welcome. How are you doing? Kia ora. Doing very well. Thank you. And two very special guests, returning guests, Emi Rakete. How are you doing, Emi? I'm doing so grim. <laughs> this is the immensity of the suffering in the world. And just for our audience who haven't heard you before, who somehow don't know who you are, um, where are you coming at this from? Yeah, so uh, my name is Emi Rakete. I'm the press spokesperson for People Against Prisons Aotearoa, which is a prison abolitionist community organisation. Um, and I'm also a newly minted lecturer at the University of Auckland in the criminology department. Yeah, you're a hard. I, I don't know what like our sports mascot is because I'm not that kind of lesbian. So, But I presume <laughs> you've got one. And whatever it is, I support that creature. So, yeah, I, I guess I have to become like a, I'm already a Māori nationalist and I'm already a third worldist, but I guess I have to be like a University of Auckland nationalist now as well. So let's go. AUT, terrible. Really pleased to be here. <laughs> and we're also joined uh, by Dylan Asafa. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm all good. Thank you. Um, all things considered. Um, but yeah, it's grim, like Amy said. Uh, yeah. And just again, for our audience, uh, what do you do? Where do you come from? Yeah, um, so I'm a lecturer in law at University of Auckland, um, <laughs> um, my big area of interest is race, um, colonialism and the law, um, which has me studying um, all sorts of stuff um, like abolition, uh, climate change, uh, hate speech, um, colonial constitutions, just basically anything that pisses me off and makes me angry, there's no moral yeah. reason or logic um, to my areas of interest. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. The The big question for the podcast today is around academic solidarity um, and I guess organizing and activating academic spaces uh, around some of these big issues. You're saying, Dylan, that your area of interest is whatever's pissing you off um, at any given time. And a few weeks back now, you helped to organize a letter an open letter um for academics to show solidarity with what's happening in gaza do you do you want to take us through what was about for people who missed it um and i guess the process around how you stood that up yeah sure um so the open letter um was from staff students um alumni um from all of the big eight universities in new zealand and it was addressed to the vice chancellors of these universities um, basically urging them to release a joint statement in solidarity with Palestine, um, condemning Israel's genocide and calling for a ceasefire, um, and beyond that, um, an end to the occupation. Um, it was really inspired by the University of Melbourne's um, letter that um, was also championed by the union over there. And so I guess the strategy behind it, um, I don't think Melbourne or even myself and the folks involved with the letter we're under the um, illusion that the vice chancellors would ever take it seriously. Um, they can't even address racism um, and white supremacy, colonialism in way less tense times. So expecting them to do it now, um, that that wasn't our, our thought. Um, it was basically just to put them on notice, to make it clear to them that they do have an obligation to stand in solidarity um, with Palestine. 
um, and also um, to serve as a list, I think, to our Palestinian students and alumni um, and staff um, so that they know who is on their side, that they have people that they can go to um, if they're um, facing any backlash from Zionists or speaking out um, or dealing with any Zionist bullying. So um, the letter, the Google form went out, I think, to date, we have about 2,600 signatures. It's been sent multiple times, I think about four times now to the vice chancellors. No response, no acknowledgement or receipt. Um, so at the moment, we're just strategizing um, about how we can continue to put pressure on them um, with our unions um, in just other ways. And this is uh, against a backdrop of just ludicrous. And I, I don't, there aren't words anymore to describe the destruction in Gaza, but just this morning, Israeli occupation forces demolished the last university, and I don't. I, yeah, I genuinely don't know what else to to say about that. I have um, I have a, a friend, internet friend, um, who is a doctor, who I think has been coming from a really similar place to where Dylan and I, who obviously have been feeling about this, right? Which is that we're part of this like international community, right? Like of of of, of academics, we have we have a uniform. We literally have like a shared costume that we all. Kind of inherited from the the, the medieval university, um, and we we talk big about the international community, and it's the same with doctors, right? They have the same process that they go through. There's a shared kind of of like brotherhood. I think women are allowed in the brotherhood now as well, which is nice for us. And we we talk big about this. Right? The academic community is like a a a, a, a subject. It's like a, a political subject which is supposed to exist, and and then we've seen that actually you can just call these people terrorists and massacre them in the most atrocious ways, uh, tear the buildings down. Um, and, and in the West, suddenly that community is totally fictitious, is completely evaporated, um, and nobody is willing to, to do anything, right, in defense of these people who are our, our siblings. And so I, I think, yeah, the, the letter to, to me, I was really, really proud to be able to sign that for, for the reasons that Dylan talked about, right, that it shows, first of all, it's a way of building some kind of force, some kind of pressure that we can try to shove our enemies and try to try to bring some pressure to bear on the Zionist entity, try to stop it from behaving in these ways. Um, it gives a lifeline to stu other students and staff who are directly affected by these atrocities to say, hey, we're with you. I think there's one other reason that I was really, really proud to sign it, right? And it's something that Mao Zedong talks about <clears throat> in this article that he wrote called, um, and I always get the order wrong here, so I'm just going to paraphrase and fuck it, look it up on Marxist.org. But it is not a bad thing, but a good thing to be attacked by the enemy. Is this point that Mao makes over and over and over again that you want your enemy to hate you? And I think mm. that we're often afraid to be loathed as 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 academics and as people. Frankly, I think New Zealanders in particular are really bad at conflict. But we we should want our enemies to hate us because we hate them, and we want to clearly draw like as 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 in as sharp relief as possible the distinction between us and our enemies to say, we are this and you are that. And if our enemy is attacking us, that means that we're doing a good job of that, right? That we're clearly distinguishing between what is good and what is evil and uniting around goods that we can fight, so we can fight against them. And so I was really proud for all of the reasons that Dylan talked about to sign this, but I was also proud to sign this to say, this is me. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm willing to fight for. I'm this. And if you hate me because I'm signing on to this, fucking good say that so that everyone understands the lines that have been drawn here right you sit over there we will all sit over there and then we can properly have this out absolutely and i think that you know you alluded to uh people in new zealand not being particularly good at these kind of conflicts and just having 
a base set of values so that these arguments aren't or are harder to have via a set of proxies, which is how okay. we tend to do politics, um, especially antagonistic politics here, means something. Well, I think Kiwis in general ha have a slightly strange sort of aversion to the idea of antagonistic politics. We have a very like woo-woo, mm -hmm. love everybody, be kind to each other sort of mentality to the point where even Labour like tried to turn that into a slogan. And I, I think like <laughs> that politics is not about um, uh, love. I mean, there's a component of love to it, but it's as much about what you oppose as it is about what you uphold. And I think this, this idea that we can just sort of yuck it up with these self-styled conservative comedian types like David Seymour or or uh, Chris Bishop, you know, where they're like, hee hee, I'm just a funny guy. I'm just a Kiwi bloke. And it's like, I don't, I don't find that charming. Like last week you tried to take food out of my kid's mouth. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not charmed by you. I don't, I don't think it's cool that you're out having a beer with your mates. You're not some, just some bloke to me. You're my enemy. You're my political enemy. And I think people are, yeah, they're a little bit um, wary of making those kind of comments because yeah. it sounds, I don't know, maybe it sounds a bit try hard. Maybe it sounds a bit overly intense, but it's, until you start sort of understanding that these people are, they're trying to hurt you, um, then you'll, you you won't be able to sort of um, oppose them in any way that really matters. And what's happening in Gaza is such a clear-cut case, right, um, for most of us, uh, that I, I don't know if I can call it a good starting point, but it's something that helps to tease out that reality that these people have a public persona where, you know, they're going and having a beer and watching your favorite uh, band uh, and splashing it all over social media. And then they're going to go to work and they're going to fuck you up. Yeah. Uh, and somehow those two things are seen as completely separate entities. Um, and it's just not the case. Yeah, 100%. I think in the context of universities, there's this idea of the benevolent university, um, this liberal construction of it as a place for academic freedom, um, you know, that is the critic and conscience of society. But I hope what's becoming really clear at this moment is that universities as structures are the intellectual and research arms of the colonial state and corporations. And if our universities aren't taking a clear stand against genocide, a genocide which is clearly and proudly broadcasted and advertised, then we need to have a real serious think and reckoning with what universities are um, and the work that they do and the functions that they serve. Um, like for me, um, working at a law school, I'm really mindful um, that this is, um, in essence, a training ground to train and educate the Crown's lawyers, the lawyers of the state, um, lawyers of corporations, um, and even those lawyers who end up working for the poor and working classes, um, that they swear an oath of allegiance to the crown upon being admitted to the bar. Um, so we need to antagonize the university. And I've, I know Emmy and I are saying this as people who work within it, um, but um, we need to also normalize an antagonism within our students um, and radicalize them as much as possible because the university is doing really important work um, for New Zealand and other settler colonial states, um, Israel um, and the US, um, by remaining silent. And God knows what else. But yeah, we, we need to encourage that sort of questioning and that reckoning um, within our students and broader communities. It's funny too, because you, you, the, the conservative grievance with tertiary education so much is that it's all about indoctrinating young people into Marxist ideology and such. And they're, 
there's so much panic to the point that I remember like when I was getting ready to go to uni as a, as a young guy in a very conservative family, I had most of the people in my life like fiercely discouraging it because they're like, everybody goes to university, they lose their faith. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the sort of the conservative worldview. But when you actually look at how they operate on like a day to day at a sort of top managerial level, they're very, um, very reactionary, very conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking earlier about the idea of finding a, a sort of a mascot for the University of Auckland and maybe the most appropriate would be just like a giant plush version of ONG Glenn because to a degree that is that is really the the real politic <laughs> that's what's actually running the university and the fact that people getting a sort of higher education the fact that people developing their critical thinking skills happen to then start developing more sort of left-wing politics uh is a is a an unanticipated side effect of that it's not it's a, it's the it's just that's what happens when you learn new information but it's not necessarily what a lot of the people in those sort of decision-making positions are hoping yeah for. and we've seen that ramping up over the last i mean it's been going on for a decade right the, the attacks on academics um it's a a classic uh line of attack by right-wing entities uh but with the stuff happening in palestine it's really become much more out in the open Uh, and you're seeing it happen in uh, New Zealand as well we had Jeremy Moses um, from Canterbury uh, University of Canterbury on the cast uh, also uh, was in a position having to write an open letter because he and other academics were being smeared um, and their jobs attacked by the Israel Institute of New Zealand Mm right-wing astroturf group essentially like and it hasn't as far as i know it hasn't been as bad here um just just yet like these these are joke organizations who are trying to make these attacks and everyone kind of knows that they've got an agenda but in places like the united states um and i think in the uk to some extent as well they've been much more successful in attacking academics and getting them removed from roles from lecturer all the way up to leadership positions at universities. Yeah, so they rolled the um, head of Harvard through this weird harassment campaign by sort of like critiquing her dissertation. And like, uh, by no means am I going to get up here and say, oh, we need to defend like Harvard <laughs> University, right? But I think what it, what it shows is that the, our, our enemies are you know, not committed to any principle, really. They'll do whatever they need to do in order to take, you know. I, I mean, the so Claudine Gay was the one who who was rolled. She, she wasn't even out here saying like, well, you've got to hand it to PFLP, you know, they're doing great work on the ground. Um, she just wasn't sufficiently critical of Israel, and they they managed to replace her for that, which, you know. I'm sure a lot of people who were going before the House Un-American Activities Commission also weren't fantastic principal revolutionary communists, but allowing these people to get rolled gave our enemies the strength to keep going. And We ended up seeing a general purge of the left out of public life in the United States and a really you know, crucial juncture in the struggle between capitalism and socialism. And I think we're seeing the same thing happening here. You you pointed out that it's not as intense in New Zealand as it is in other countries because here our right-wing cutout groups are basically these like collections of like weird Batman villains but they've got they've got backstories and stuff, man. Like some of the transphobes genuinely are like the weirdest like fell in a vat of poison gas and like came out like the joker (laughs) came out wrong yeah um and so they're not as powerful in this country as they are in the u.s right and i think we can think about um like why that is so israel is a colony of the u.s and is like a forward operating base for u.s imperialism in the middle east a means of kind of keeping this massive friendly hyper militarized power right on the doorstep of iran lebanon syria all of these countries over which the U.S. needs to project power, it's got to maintain control um, over 
um, the OPEC countries. Um, and so when Americans point out that Israel is this like ethnic supremacist, <laughs> hyper-militarized racist apartheid state, that directly threatens the interests of the American ruling class. And so you mm. get these like doxing trucks showing up outside universities, like showing the personal information of um, students who participate in um, Palestine rallies. In New Zealand, we, we're, we're luckier than the American working class, right? Here, like the, the interests of New Zealand's capitalists aren't directly tied to the interest, like Israel. Israel's got very little to do with New Zealand's ruling class, really, in an immediate way. But New Zealand's ruling class does need to preserve its relationship to the US. And so we're seeing like a very, very half-assed pro-Israel <clears throat> kind of assault here, right? The, the Like the Israel Institute, that's the best that they can manage. Like these guys are bloggers. We are bloggers, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, and so, but, so I think this is like a strategic advantage for us, right? We're, we're like, thank God that this is a white country, yeah? Because what it means is that we could break New Zealand away from Israel. We, we genuinely could do it. There have been moments all through this country's history where we've been able to really, really attack them. New Zealand, um, years ago, Murray McCulley, who was the MP up on East Coast Bays, did something at the UN, and I can't remember exactly what he did, that directly criticized Israel for being like for being an apartheid hyper-militarized racist state and caused this like big blow up. And he was a right wing, he was a national politician, right? So because New Zealand doesn't directly need Israel in the way that America directly needs Israel, New Zealand, I think, I think it was possible would be possible for us to be able to push the New Zealand government to strongly criticize or break ties with Israel. And the thing that is so great about that happening, the thing that would be so great about that happening, is that um in the eyes of the West, we are the West, right? This is a white country formally. And so if we can do that, we can be like the first domino, right? We can be one of the first core countries from 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 you know within the bosom of the empire to say, hey, these guys are freaks. And hopefully be kind of that first bold voice that will help some of these other countries who, you know, for whom Israel is also deeply unpopular, help some of these other countries peel away too. It'll be really tough, and we're seeing how tough it is right now, right? But there's no, I think, direct economic factor, as there is with America, that's going to make it categorically impossible for us to be the first off the block. I think we could get it done. And there's, there's reason to be optimistic there too, because we have flirted so much we've come so close on multiple times to actually being one of those countries to formally recognize the state of palestine um it's been floated in parliament more than once uh, labor have at one point declared their intention to do so though i believe they ended up retracting that um they did they pussy, they pushed it out as soon as operation alexa flood was carried out yeah so it's it's we clearly we're we're not as um, bad off as, as some places our uh, ostensibly left-wing majority sort of party still is open to some of these ideas even if um hipkins doesn't have a spine um so yeah i i i, I agree with that sentiment i like that sentiment yeah i mean compared to australia right where <laughs> they've got their uh, ostensibly left one uh, government in power and are just mm. rabid did you see that albanese founded parliamentary friends of palestine he founded it Ooh. and now so we've got, you know, <laughs> yeah We've got like a better brand of spineless lib in this country, I think. Not like, yeah, uh, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, ours are just cowards. Um, They're not like mendacious cowards, at least. <laughs> yeah. But what can we, you know, we're doing these open letters. Um, I think there's probably more organizing happening uh, across the academy than I've seen in maybe in my lifetime mm. on a single issue. But how do you actually turn that into action? Um, and especially, against the backdrop of a academic administration that 
it's going to do everything it can to facilitate the opposite. That's a, that's a tricky one, man. Um, I think what this open letter experience has taught me is that students are the key. Uh, what I'm seeing with the um, Palestine group uh, that we have at UOA, and I know it's a similar experience at other campuses, is that they're taking, they're doing things on their own terms. They're not waiting for academics who can't be relied to do jack shit uh, with <laughs> justice. I know there's all sorts of sentiments out there that, you know, uh, we should have grace with them um, because they have a lot to lose. But I, I think that's a cop out. And students are rightfully taking their own direct action. So I have a lot of, a lot of faith in what they're doing and they're organizing. For us, it, it's, it's really like for staff, um, at least the way I see our roles as faculty members, is just continuing to push um, the administration to release a joint statement and the unions as well. I'm just going to put the union on a bit of blast here because they've been uh, extremely um, problematic um, with the statements that they've released, um, which have um, called it like a conflict, Israel-Gaza conflict, and made all sorts of false equivalencies just to sink balance, which is um, terrible. But we, within the scope of what we can do within those professional capacities, need to push these organizations to release these press statements because I think they can uh, maybe this is me being a bit delusional, optimistic, but I think they can sway politicians and current, you know, um, government administration um, to divest from the US and whatever perceived connection it has with all these big powers to call, you know, for a ceasefire and to support the ICJ action. Yeah, I think this is something that uh, Tamim Shaltone, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now, is always underlining is that. You know, we're getting out every week uh, to march. We're getting information out there. People are doing press releases. Uh, it's not out of the goodness of their hearts that politicians made a statement to even seek steps towards a ceasefire, right? They, they didn't do that for fun. They didn't do that because they have strong values. They did that because they'd seen numbers showing that 60% of people wanted an immediate ceasefire. Um, and it's uh, obviously the statement from parliament is not good enough, but you're not going to get there unless you are building up uh, an extensive set of public pressure. Yeah, there was, um, when I was, when I kind of was getting radicalized um, as a student. Um, you weren't born radicalized? <laughs> <laughs> My dad is technically a member of the Wiggles, man. I don't know that I've got an organic position <laughs> that's going to, you know what I'm saying? Um, when I was getting radicalized as a student, um, the the kind of organizing that we were doing was under the, the, the auspices of this like organization or tendency, what do you want to call it? The claim was, we are the university and there was a push from from students from staff and from workers at the university against this kind of really neoliberal vision of universities basically kind of as like venting machines for degrees that need to be run by business people in order to maximize the like ka-chunk ka-chunk of degrees coming out because like the the university and I, I see this now Dylan will see this now too as people who work here now as teachers it's just a workplace right it's a it's a workplace and we're the ones who do the work right? There's lecturers, there's students, there's professional staff, there's people who do the, the business of being a university, which is research and education. Uh, and so, like, the, yes, that we need to push the entity called the university to do everything that it can to bring about an end to, like, the atrocities that are being perpetrated by the Zionist entity. But by the same token, as you were just saying, the way that we get power is by being people who've already got the power, right? Like the the parliamentary statement came about because we were there saying, do this. And I think that we'll get movement out of the out of the university when we mobilize the people who who are the university 
we mobilize mm. staff and students. And students are like pretty easy to mobilize because they're like the angriest people that I've ever met. And so I, I think that, yeah, working through the union, doing what we can to support students, um, we really see school. I'm like really, really lucky, I think, to have the, to be able to do the kind of work that I do because I get to talk with young people about the stuff that is really interesting to them, what they're really pissed off about and what stuff makes them want to move. And then when I go to a protest, it's like a, I could, I could, I could see a homework and, you know, we could, we could do shoots at some of these protests. Mm-hmm. The, I have, I have better attendance from my students at protests than in class sometimes, frankly. And so we're really like, as, as academics, we're really tailing, you know, we're, we're in many, in many senses, I think, coming after the real kind of work that's being done. And so I really want us to to do what we can to like, to support this organizing, like Dylan was saying, that's already taking place, whether or not, with, like, whether or not we're there, whether or not we're, whether or not we're leading anything. I don't know that we need to be leading them on this. I think that a lot of the stuff is, is already happening. Hmm. It's really exciting. It shows, again, it's just, it shows how clearly most people understand this. <laughs> most people aren't going to sit around and go, oh, well, it's such a complicated situation. It's not that complicated. These people are getting bombed from the air and shot by drones as they try to get aid off of a truck. It's not complicated at all. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just figuring out like what levers have we got access to that we can use to try to like exercise an influence has been like the hard part. I think because like academics tend to be really comfortable people right i'm making more money now than i've ever made in my life and i i think it's very easy to worry about that right so i i don't think that academics necessarily make up this like intrinsically revolutionary subject like the 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 best guys are going to be people who like write articles for a living unlikely but what i will point out though is that the intelligentsia has always been a really significant element of every revolutionary movement, right? Everywhere. The Bolshevik party in Russia, um, for the most part, were not factory workers. Lenin, Trotsky, um, like a bunch of the core organizing members of the what became the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, <laughs> were all book people. <laughs> people um, Like Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Kupskaya, was a teacher who had been a tutor. And so there is a really important part that we can play in these kinds of struggles, but I think it's really important also not to say, or not to kind of delude ourselves into thinking that if we like Mm. write a good article, that everyone's hearts are going to change. But we can write a good enough article that gets people mad enough that they mobilize. And then it doesn't matter if the ruling class's hearts change, right? We don't need to worry about people's hearts. We need to worry about their hands. And if we do a good enough job educating, mobilizing people, we can force their hands. We've done it before. I want to dip into that a little bit more around trying to move within the university or within the kind of wider network of academies because it does seem like something here in this country and i don't know if it's a new zealand exceptionalism thing i don't know if it's something specific uh to us but you know you're talking about as a, as a workplace and as the workers you can kind of try and pressure it from within but who's your boss right like it's not the vice chancellor really uh it's a it's dispersed in a way that is almost designed to stop you from doing this kind of stuff. How, I I know I'm asking questions, I don't know if they're going to be able to be answered, but how do you get past that alongside some of the things you were talking about, Emmy, um, around academics, either just kind of feeling stuck or feeling too comfortable in in their position to organise in the first place? Yeah, I guess my my hot take or my quick thought um, in response to that 
is that for those of us that are truly committed to decolonial, anti-capitalist, anti-racist work, we are very much prepared to lose our jobs um, and to make sacrifices, but that, that's a really tricky tightrope, especially for those of us with families and having to provide for them. Um, but that is what the university does. I think it works to suppress um, decolonial, anti-racist um, spaces and thought, particularly those that are having the potential to actually um, have material impacts on political um, decisions. Um, so I guess for me personally, it's being aware that many people don't feel um, that way. People don't have that um, deep spiritual um, connection. I think for those of us um, that are indigenous, that are deeply committed to um, our Palestinian siblings, we see um, solidarity as our, our lifeblood, um, that it's, it's something that we, we don't know what the purpose of our careers and what our lives are if we're not dedicated to this movement, prepared to be disciplined, to be suspended um, and even fired. Amy, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, it's a super interesting one, right? I think it's 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 funny because like the on the one hand, you often get really radical kind of um announcements or like statements or like affirmations of belief from academics. But in terms of like how how good are we at actually like mobilizing and like using that power, actually like not very, right? I I think I'm really lucky in that because I'm ensconced here secure in the social sciences we have like 100 union membership right like i don't think i've ever had to like threaten to rough in on up to get them to join the union <laughs> nor would i because i don't endorse use of violence um and so like the we i think here do a good job of like actually doing things that we actually think we say that we believe in but i think that the university as a system is designed to produce people who say stuff that will read well or which will like produce good prose and good publications, but that which they have no intention of actually living by. Mm. And so I think like stuff like the the like the like the union and like community organizing is really important because it forces you to go, do I actually think this? Am I actually going to commit to the bit or am I going to just say things? So like I've kind of done this backwards. A lot of people sit down and read books for their whole life, get a lecture job, and then like, I'm now important and it's time for people to listen to me. And I've kind of come from community organizing for people against prisons Aotearoa, where my opinions have always been meant shit and no one has ever wanted to listen to me. And so like, I'm quite happy saying things that I think, because if I don't think it, I'm not going to say it because this, this, the stakes of saying something you don't believe in is that you're going to get called a dumb bitch on the news by someone. It better be for something that you actually believe in. And so I think that <laughs> as academics, we kind of have to really like the time is now, I think, is the right gets more and more willing to just harass anyone who says anything that they don't like to really like commit to what we're saying, to commit to what we're thinking and live by it. Having said that, I got hired here last week and I'd like not to get fired this week. So let's hang on. Let's hang on as long as we can. That that thing you said about that, that sort of being willing to say the things but not do the sort of mahi behind it. I feel like that's it's a it's a very elevated thing specifically in New Zealand uh, or should I say Aotearoa New Zealand because we, we have this um, this sort of very, very comparatively progressive approach to uh, Indigenous politics in New Zealand when you look at something like America or a nightmare like Australia, uh, and, and then you, you see how far we've sort of come. But what it means is we've, we've, we've 
opened the door for a sort of new class of equally useless but less offensive form uh, of sort of that um, uh, performative progress, that sort of performative anti-colonial stuff where uh, you'll have people who will, will they'll, they'll learn their mihi, they'll learn their pepe, <laughs> uh, they'll use some reo and things, uh, and then they'll implement the most sort of um, bizarre racist things you've ever heard. Or, I, I mean, I worked at council for a while uh, and uh, some of the most like racist shit I've ever heard in my life came out of the mouths of people that I was working with at an organization that forced you to go to like a uh, New Zealand history uh, and colonization lecture as part of your onboarding process uh, because it's uh, we, we have this like m mentality I think in New Zealand of well we've clocked it we've sort of figured it out I couldn't possibly um, make a stupid racist mistake I couldn't possibly be failing to understand this thing that I went to a, a day one a single day course on uh and so we i think australia and stuff they don't really have that same thing because they're just like oh, we don't care we we hate our indigenous people uh but in, in new zealand we have this like oh of course we love them of course we love them of course we we care about all these things but in, in practical sense they don't yeah in new zealand it feels like quietly calling someone a racist is the equivalent of getting in their face and screaming they're a cunt <laughs> that's why like, i really right to the second thing <laughs> like, like just the responses of that like no I, I don't think a week goes past where i don't see something or someone saying we're not a racist country mm. Mm. um which is just the most absurd statement possible but it's very much part of the dna right of of discourse here yeah i think i've told you about this car was that the uh, that incident when i had at council where i noticed a sort of slightly racist discrepancy in how they were doing information collecting uh where they were sort of not bothering to collect um specific granular information on tangata whenua when they were doing polling uh for user audiences for stuff and i sort of very very gently sort of tried to raise this with the people who had done it and they just flew off the handle like literally like screaming in my face angry uh, because I, I hadn't even called them racist. I just said, hey, look, you've overlooked something that's pretty obvious to me. <laughs> but it, it, it is funny. We're, 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 there's this impression of being so good at something that as soon as it gets called into question, um, people get really, really sensitive. They get really worked up about it because they don't like the idea that maybe they're not as, um, they haven't got it quite as clocked as they thought they did. So I guess the other question coming out of the way that we're responding to this, uh, whether that's within the academy or other civic groups or just New Zealand public as a whole responding to Gaza that is um and the genocide there is how do we tie that like say our organizing was going well right um say you know we are mobilizing people and I think to an extent that is true things are moving but how do we tie that back or forward uh to a movement around uh decolonialism around uh the indigenous people um both of Aotearoa and the Pacific, and, the Pacific uh, and actually start laying out a, a base set of values that people can organize around uh, here en masse um, and be drawn to, given uh, the way that New Zealanders tend to respond uh, to this kind of critique, or like, as light as it may be. Yeah, uh, it's really... Good question, because uh, I see a lot of the mobilizing and organizing right now is rightfully around a ceasefire, um, around, like specifically with lawyers, um, around getting New Zealand um, to support um, or intervene with an ICJ case um, against Israel. But what I would like to see and what I see as kind of necessary um, for decolonization is for us to 
imagine a world beyond international law, um, beyond this current order where um, the US is able to veto um, Security Council resolutions and um, the US and Israel are able to render any ICJ advisory opinion or General Assembly um, resolution powerless. Um, I think we need to adopt that revolutionary and imaginative ethic, um, which I think is really hard for many people to do because we're so attached, um, whether, you know, in material ways or just um, mentally and spiritually attached to the current apparatus at international law and at the state level corporations and all of that. Um, but we do need to revisit our, our theories of change. Uh, I think what this moment is showing us is that decolonization absolutely requires armed resistance, um, that we can't compromise or negotiate um, or debate our way to freedom, to our own liberation uh, within these democratic institutions which are designed to fail. Um, so it's really important that we don't just fight for the immediate stuff, which is crucially important um, to prevent further murder um, in Palestine and around the world, um, but that we keep our eyes focused on dismantling and building something better. Yeah, totally. Beautiful, dude. Yeah, I think in terms of like what what are we gonna do, right? Like what's the what is to be done? Like question that Leninists always like to invoke because we think it makes us sound a bit like Lenin. I hope it did. Um like <laughs> what what is to be done, right? In this immediate situation for us here now, sitting you're sitting in your car or like on the toilet listening to this, what what do we have to do? And I think um, um, immediately, right? In the immediately right now, we don't have a clear means of organizing. We've got a lot, and I'm part of this, and I'm like, we've got a lot of different organizations doing a lot of different kinds of work, right? On all kinds of different, all kinds of different issues. But we don't have a revolutionary organization that's directing and harnessing all of this energy, all of this like really beautiful energy coming out of people who I like love and who I am and who I respect for the destruction of the capitalist class in this country. And until we have that, until we have a revolutionary party, we just aren't going to be able to do the thing that we need to do in order to get out of the situation. We had a communist party in this country, and from what I can tell, they spent 60 years arguing about whether the Soviet Union or China was better, decided that Albania was better, and then dissolved themselves. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. But until we have a revolutionary party that's able to do the the, 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 the crucial task before us as the proletariat, we just we can't get out of this, right? Um, New Zealand is always going to be stuck in this position as like a junior imperialist partner to the West, sitting out here in the Pacific acting basically as an unsinkable um, Navy base and aircraft carrier for the US in the event of hot war with China. Um, and we, we're never going to be able to be anything other than that unless we can break ties with the US. So I think for building a revolutionary organization and then splitting apart from the Western imperialist bloc are like the crucial tasks before us. And exactly like Dylan said, that's a really hard thing to do, which is is why I think all of our forebears spent so long arguing in book club instead. Um, because like it's it's tough to do. It's tough to find time for. And speaking as like a mother of a toddler, it's really hard to find time for anything. It's why we're doing this in everyone else's lunch breaks. Thanks guys. Um, it's hard to, to do, but and we have to commit ourselves to this task and figure out how we can make revolutionary organizing work fast. Because um, I don't know that when we face immediate horrors like the genocide in Gaza, I don't know that letting the capitalist class be in charge and asking them to do the right thing 
is working. So far, it doesn't seem like it's it's working. And next time, it's probably not going to work. And the time after that, it's probably not going to work. And and then we will all be dead due to climate change. So we need to get our hands on the wheel, and we need to do it as soon as we practically can. Yeah, it, it is that thing of like uh, how willing people are to just continually ask for permission to do the right thing and be slapped down and then just go back and ask again. Because, yeah, the whole time you're talking about, I'm thinking about the sort of climate protests uh, where the bare minimum, they're like blocking a road and people are like, well, I believe in climate change, but you can't be blocking a road. And it's just like, do you, do you believe in climate change? Like, do you understand what, what's at stake here? That like a bare minimum minor inconvenience type protest is a red line for you, but the but mass extinction event is not. Uh, and it, 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 tying it back to um, Gaza as well is the, the, the idea that like people can't tolerate the idea of um, Ansar Allah having these sort of non-murderous, non they're not killing people, they're just blockading Israeli ships in the Red Sea. And people are like, well, uh, well I, supported, I supported the Palestinian cause, but I can't get behind this. And it's just like, really? Like, how squeamish are you uh, that like even these non-murderous, non, uh, these, these, these protests in which we're not killing people and we're taking uh, objectively moral action in order to prevent mass death of the future uh, is too much for so many people that's the needle that i think is really needing to be pushed right now is, is helping people get out of that mindset of um overcoming that sort of bare minimum of what needs to be done uh just to survive the next 20 30 years yeah i've seen what nato has allowed itself to justify on the back of a um genocide you know like <clears throat> and yeah as you say people getting squeamish over a blockade uh 30, 000... Palestinians are dead like get fucked but I I think right this what what Oliver was just saying I think this comes back to what Dylan and I started talking off like talking about here right which is that people need not to be squeamish and that's a problem of communication right of education and communication I think like we're educators you guys are communicators and so I think that we're like quite well placed I think to kind of understand this problem first of all that people don't have like the theoretical base to understand what's going on here Many mm. people won't know who Ansar Allah are. They're not going to understand the regional conflict at all. And that's the kind of stuff that academics should, when we're doing our jobs well, be able to help people to understand. And people aren't um, like getting opinions. They're not getting news. And they're not having it contextualized for them in an appropriate way that helps them to come to the conclusion. They're like, yes, we do support Yemeni pirates. <laughs> pirates, like freedom fighters. They're doing the exact right thing. They're doing what we would hope we would be able to do in this situation. That's something that communicators can do a really good job of. And so when we kind of think of, when I think of myself and as someone who works in a university system, and I think like, what's the best that I can do? <clears throat> yes, there's like my job, which is important to me. And I think I do a good job of it. Um, but the, the underside of that is really important to me too. Um, downside of like helping students reach these radical conclusions and giving them the political education that they're going to need going into the rest of the 21st century, God help us, um, to be able to understand and face the crises that are coming. Um, and that's that's not my job, right? Um, when I got hired here, some of the like um, rose gallery of freaks and weirdos that populate this country got really upset about me getting hired. Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> good, right? I want them to hate me. But like the the claim was, was made that like, well, I'm just here to indoctrinate your children. Bro, I can't get my students to read most of the time. Straight up, <laughs> straight up. I have as much control over them as I do my toddler, right? They're not reading anything they don't want to read. They're not considering any opinions they don't want to consider. So if someone comes to university and leaves it, a committed communist revolutionaries because they were ready to become a communist revolutionary and i had nothing to do with that transformation right 
The fact is that people become revolutionaries when the objective conditions of their society require them to do so, make it become historically inevitable. And no one, no matter how um, intelligent or persuasive or uh, funny or well-spoken or sexy, perhaps, she is, can cause that to occur, right? I can't, I can't indoctrinate your kid. Can't do it. We can't do it. What we can do is help them come to the conclusions that they're reaching for by themselves. And I think that's something that academics can do. I think something that communicators can do. I think something that media should do and could do more of. Um, but it's by no means an impossible task, right? It is, in fact, the task before us. So and I think that comes back to what you're saying about needing some kind of uh, revolutionary organ, right? Um, whether it's a party or some other administrative uh, group, because you know, it becomes historically inevitable that something will happen um, and that people will get angry enough or the conditions kind of enacted upon them make them desperate enough to take action of some sort. And that's not necessarily uh, to overthrow capitalism. And that's the flip side to a lot of this and the people that we're talking about as being our enemies and who hate us is that they're also trying to harness that energy. You know, they're, they're also trying to find these people um, who are angry, who are pissed off at the status quo, who are who are desperate, uh, and turn that into political energy. And they already have those organisations. Well, I mean, look at the parliament protest stuff when they were out on the lawn. That's, that's a perfect example of our enemies sort of capturing... Um, that rage capturing that sort of and and leading them down a complete garden path to nonsense but um, taking gr a group of people who were, were justly frustrated with the situation that they were in uh, justly frustrated with the fact that our government our labor government was not really looking out of, for the interests of the working class during that crisis um, and instead of them being sort of funneled into something practical or useful they um, set fire to a swing set but that being that example of, of if we're not there someone else will be well, I think we've solved it all, folks. Uh, that's enough for the episode. Uh, thanks so much for joining our think tank. And a paper will be out later in the week, I'm sure, uh, outlining that. But were there any, uh, <laughs> in seriousness, though, were there any final things that you wanted to add, Dylan uh, or Amy? Uh, no, just that just that final point that you guys were making around those squeamish folks, those folks who are really deeply committed to respectability politics. Uh, I think they need to be antagonized. They need to be called out um, because I think they do a lot of harm. Um, and so it's really important, I think, to test them um, about their commitments to the state um, and um, what underpins those commitments and their theories of change. Because in the in the in the legal profession, those those folks are really prevalent. Um, and they do a lot of work in terms of stopping the mobilization of more radical lawyers who are wanting to do um, work for Palestine. Um, so I think not being afraid to challenge and antagonize those folks is, is really important as well, because they hold a lot of power and they do a lot for the state. And it's not always clear that they are an enemy, right? Mm. Um, because we're conditioned to think of certain uh, reactions or personality types or psychology as being the antagonist. When someone just says, oh, I think we should calm down and be a bit more rational about this, it doesn't immediately set off your alarm your alarm bells, uh, but sometimes it should. Emmy, any, any final points uh, from you as well? No, no, I'm just like, I'm so excited that Dylan came on here, um, just because I think, Dylan, I like you're the bomb, um, and I, <laughs> I think that you've got a, like a lot of really important stuff to say, and I think that this is like the perfect outlet for us, so I'm really, really pleased that we got to have this conversation. I think that we're in such a crucial like juncture now 
socially when we're, we're seeing just the, the 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 worst horrors i think i've seen more dead children than alive children lately right i think that's the same for all of us and if we can't do anything about this like we have just abdicated our humanity right so i'm really really i'm really really pleased to to that there's a platform here for people to hear from Dylan because I think that he's a really, really important thinker and I just, I love you, dude. Right, they get you. Amy's my queen and I'm a big fan of this podcast. So yeah, keep up the input of Mahi. We can do it. Perfect. And if people want to find your work elsewhere, uh, Dylan, where, where can they do that? Uh, good question. <laughs> I think for academics, we just have like a, a page where you Google us and it comes up with all our publications. <laughs> um, but um, because universities are just corporations who hide all work behind um, paywalls. If you want a copy of anything that I've written, um, just email me. My email address should be there and I'll, I'll send it to you. Fantastic. Uh, and thanks also to my co-host, Ollie. Thanks for joining us. And finally, thank you to our audience. Thanks for tuning in uh, to another episode of One of 200. If you've enjoyed this, if you think these voices are worth getting out there to uh, a wider uh, population, share it. Let people know that these kind of conversations are occurring uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram. I think we're kind of on TikTok, but somewhat defunct uh, until I get people who are better than me to to run it effectively. You got to start doing makeup tutorials, man. I got I got to start doing fucking anything <laughs> the uh, for the starters. Explaining stuff while dancing. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just eating on screen. Um, I think would would be better than what's currently happening there. Revolutionary, which is almost, almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. ASMR, just um. <laughs> quietly whispering lemon into the uh microphone that's been another episode we'll catch you on the weekend for current events see you later Amongst the people every day